There is no exemption from antitrust law just because you're calling yourself a joint venture. Your behavior is still going to be reviewed in a manner that will look at the anti-competitive effects versus the pro-competitive benefits. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Craig? And I write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsors today, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, which is a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, turning to this week's topic, Bob, with a unanimous vote, the Supreme Court ruled 9-0 to against the NFL in the American Needle versus NFL case. Uh, it's one of the most important legal cases in sports, and it centers around a lawsuit filed by, not surprisingly, American Needle, a maker of sports hats, uniforms, and other apparel who had a licensing contract with NFL properties since the 1970s. And then in 2002, NFL Properties signed an exclusive 10-year deal with Reebok, shutting out American Needle and other competitors. American Needle argued that the NFL was made up of 32 separate entities and therefore not a single entity, but it was also in violation of antitrust law. Well, many are saying that this ruling is significant uh, not only uh, as a matter of sports law, but uh, for its uh, impact on on business in other respects, uh, antitrust law, intellectual property in other areas. So we're going to explore more about the decision uh, and uh, uh, what it might mean going forward with a couple of guests. Uh, First of all, joining us today to help explore this case is attorney Mark Edelman. Uh, Professor Edelman is a member of the faculty at Barry University's Duane O. Andreas School of Law in Orlando, Florida where he teaches and writes in the areas of antitrust, contracts, property law, and sports law. He's regularly cited by the news media regarding the Sherman Act and its application to professional sports leagues, and he was recently cited in a Supreme Court brief involving American Needle versus National Football League. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mark Edelman. Thank you for having me. Our next guest is Professor Michael McCann, an associate law professor at Vermont Law School. Professor McCann is a nationally recognized expert in the fields of sports law, antitrust, and behavioral law, as well as economics. He is a legal analyst for Sports Illustrated and writes the Sports and Law column on SI.com. And along with Harvard Law School professor John Hansen, he is a co-founder of the Project on Law and Mind Sciences at Harvard Law School. His most recent article, American Needle versus NFL, An Opportunity to Reshape Sports Law, can be found in Yale Law Journal. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me on, Craig and Bob. Well, let's kind of get a little bit of an overview before we get started. Michael, can you um, give us kind of what this case is about and how the antitrust issues and uh, intellectual property play into it? Sure, Craig. So the case is about the exclusive contract between the NFL and Reebok 
over apparel licensing. So back in about 10 years ago, the NFL and Reebok came to an agreement that only Reebok would make NFL apparel, more or less. That shut out other companies from access, companies that previously had contracts with the NFL to make licensed apparel. One of those companies was American Needle, who argued that it's a violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Act for this contract to exist. And the basic argument is that, look, NFL teams are a group of competitors. They play on the field. They play off the field. They're clearly competitors. And under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, competitors are obligated to compete. And when they don't compete, they're subject to rule of reason analysis, typically, which looks at the pro and anti-competitive benefits and detriments of an exclusive contract and other types of agreements that limit competition. The NFL said, wait a second, we're not a group of competitors, we're one entity, and teams should be viewed as units of that entity. So then the parties disagreed, they sued each other, the trial court held in favor of the NFL that it was a single entity, and the significance of that is, first of all, no other court had argued or had concluded that a group of competitors in sports, teams that are independently owned, could be a single entity. And it was, a, it was a novel decision that many were surprised by. Not only were they surprised by it, but there was no discovery in terms of looking at the pro and anti-competitive advantages of the contract, because if the NFL is a single entity, then it's exempt from Section 1 of the Sherman Act, because Section 1 only relates to competitors. And previously, uh, the Supreme Court had held a, a single entity can only be a parent and a wholly owned subsidiary. That clearly doesn't define the NFL, but the NFL argued that its unique set of characteristics as a professional sports league should lend itself to single entity exclusion. Uh, the Seventh Circuit affirmed the decision, and it went up to the Supreme Court. Both the NFL and the American Needle sought review, which was surprising. Usually, a, a victorious party doesn't seek review, but the NFL concluded that this was the right time to become, to at least to gain recognition from the Supreme Court that it's a single entity. And as we know, they lost. I know. And now the case has been remanded for Section 1 analysis. The contract itself between the NFL and Reebok could actually pass scrutiny under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, but the NFL wanted it to be excluded from any kind of scrutiny, and that's what they lost in this case. Mark, uh, let's bring you into this and and ask, why is everybody talking about this case? What's what's the significance of it? Well, the NFL had attempted to achieve was to get a broad classification as a single entity, which would have meant that under antitrust review, under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, at least in areas where the NFL was called a single entity, it would not even be subject to antitrust scrutiny. Uh, Generally, when a plaintiff brings an antitrust suit under Section 1 of the Sherman Act, there's a three-step standard for review. Uh, First are the preliminary issues, which involve whether there are two or more parties involved that engage in interstate commerce. Then the conduct is looked at on the merits, as Michael explained, under the rule of reason for pro-competitive versus anti-competitive effects. And finally, we look at defenses. Now, what the NFL wanted the Supreme Court to say was agreements reached between the teams in the league, if the league were just one entity, would not even get beyond that preliminary threshold issue of two or more parties involved, meaning that if the Supreme Court had come out the NFL's direction, at least wherever a court were to find the NFL were a single entity, um, any NFL conduct would not be subject to antitrust review. 
Now, while this particular case was limited to the 32 NFL teams coming together and agreeing on licensing practices, the NFL engages in a whole host of other behaviors where the teams come together and reach agreements. Rules with respect to teams moving into different markets. Rules with respect to players who are suspended. In theory, if the NFL were a single entity, they might even be able to set ticket prices the same amongst all of the teams. So a broad classification of the NFL being just one thing would allow them to act in a whole host of manners that would make them much more powerful vis-a-vis consumers and other parties involved. So how does this translate how does this case translate into um, the regular business world? I mean, what can companies that are, are large or have subsidiaries like the NFL, if that's in fact what the court's ruling is, uh, how are they to look at this decision? Well, the 2006 decision of Texaco v. Dorger created some change or perceived change in the way joint ventures were looked at. Um, that case made clear that all behavior of joint ventures was subject to full rule of reason review, meaning that if separate companies that are engaged in a legitimate venture together come together and agree on certain terms, a certain price, it would be looked at under the rule of reason. Now, that is still the law today. That has not changed at all as a result of American Needle. But what this does say is a legitimate joint venture of any type is subject to review under the rule of reason. There is no exemption from antitrust law just because you're calling yourself a joint venture. Your behavior is still going to be reviewed in a manner that will look at the anti-competitive effects versus the pro-competitive benefits. In other words, if several different companies get together to work on a venture and they're going to put a single set of terms in place, they can't do so in a way that would be to the detriment of consumers. Don't, don't I have a memory in the back of my mind from long ago that baseball is exempt from antitrust law? And if so, how does that relate to this case? Baseball has a limited antitrust exemption. Previously, or at least prior to the Kirk Flood Act of 1998, baseball enjoyed a complete, more or less, exemption from Section 1 of the Sherman Act. And the reason why baseball had it was because the Supreme Court had concluded that baseball doesn't impact interstate commerce. This was back in the 1920s, and also that baseball is the national pastime, which is you know, <laughs> sort of a curious source of reasoning. But in any event, baseball had enjoyed it, and uh, it had lasted, including through the Kurt Flood case, into the 90s. And then Congress passed a law which limited the exemption in a variety of ways, although it remains in the books um, in other ways. It would have benefited, perhaps, by this decision if the NFL had won, although it's not entirely clear whether baseball's existing antitrust exemption would have been benefited by however way the Supreme Court decided in favor of the NFL. So baseball still enjoys a limited exemption, and it's one that it certainly wants to keep, but it's not one that would have been threatened by this decision. It's worth noting that uh, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Soccer all submitted amicus briefs in American Needle in favor of the NFL position. Major League Baseball stayed out of the case. Uh, presumably, the reason why Major League Baseball stayed out of it is while Mike is completely correct that we're not sure under the Kurt Flood Act of 98 
how broad baseball's exemption is. Uh, the owners of Major League Baseball have attempted to interpret, or at least claim to interpret, that exemption broadly. So by not getting involved, they were taking the stance that American Needle would not affect them because they already are exempt. Now, whether that's actually the case will remain to be seen the next time a plaintiff challenges a business of baseball conduct by trying to bring an antitrust suit against those 30 teams. So what does this mean for sports fans? Is the NFL now going to be required to license to American Needle? And are we going to see uh, officially licensed products being distributed by Reebok and many other companies? Well, the answer to that is not necessarily. Um, All this means is the case will be remanded back to the district court for a full rule of reason analysis, uh, in which the court will look at whether there is market power and whether the anti-competitive effects are greater than the pro-competitive benefits. Now, the strongest argument out there that the court will ultimately find this joint licensing to be anti-competitive and require a different arrangement would be the fact that at least purportedly American Needle has evidence showing that the price of hats have increased dramatically over the past 10 years since this practice has gone into place. However, the alternative argument is that this really is not about the single licensing, but rather the fact that each of the individual teams are selling their li- giving their licensing rights to a single body. And there might be certain efficiencies involved in that as well. And when I talk about the efficiencies that might be involved in it, the potential pro-competitive effects, presume that you're starting a company that wants to sell T-shirts. And you're not looking to sell New York Giant T-shirts or San Francisco 49er T-shirts. You're looking to sell a single T-shirt that uses the logos of all of the teams combined. Well, if we were not allowed to have any joint licensing arrangements whatsoever, then you would have to go to each of the 32 NFL teams and procure the right to use their trademark. However, under the current system that's been in place since 1963, you're able to get them all from a single source. So it's possible that this could be seen as a pro-competitive effect or efficiency of the current system, and it's at least possible it'll be upheld. Uh, Interesting, it's worth noting that Michael Carrier, uh, who's a law professor over at Rutgers School of Law, Camden, recently completed a study which took a look at all antitrust cases under the rule of reason that have gone to final determination, not by a jury, but by a judge, and found that of those 222 cases over the past 10 years that have gone to final adjudication by a judge, 221 of them have come out in favor of the defendants. So it's still a tall order for American Needle on the full rule of reason to have the system put in place by the NFL overturned. It's possible, but the case is still far from over. It's also possible that they could settle, and that would just leave the door open again for this type of case occurring. And it wouldn't surprise me if this case actually does settle before we find out its ultimate disposition. Hey, Michael, I wonder whether the uh, uh, what, what the significance is of this final section of the opinion uh, in which Justice Stevens 
begins it by saying football teams that need to cooperate are not trapped by antitrust law. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there may be occasions when, uh, in order to be competitive, uh, they, they need to cooperate uh, in various commercial ways. Uh, what's he saying there? What's the significance of that? Well, Bob, I, th- I think it's a, it's an interesting point in the decision, and it's one that the NFL has amplified in the aftermath of the case. The NFL certainly is looking at this as language that is intimating the possibility of single entity recognition in some type of undefined area. We don't know exactly what Justice Stevens is referring to. I, I suspect he's referring to things like game rules, where unless teams agree that a first down is 10 yards, or unless teams agree that there's a penalty for holding, you can't play NFL football. You can't play competitive games unless you agree on the underlying rules. I suspect he's referring to that. Now, possibly he's referring to other types of activity, although clearly not in the context of apparel, given that all nine justices said no. But I I think the NFL is, is going to latch onto that language and try to play it up and say, well, yeah, we lost in the context of apparel, but that's all we know. Maybe Justice Stevens is referring to broadcasting deals. Maybe he's referring uh, to video game licensing contracts. Who knows? But I suspect what he's referring to, and again, it's hard to get inside his mind, but are things that are clearly not litigious. Game rule. I think game rules is the classic example where you have to agree on game rules. Competing teams necessarily agree on rules of play. Otherwise, they can't play. But there aren't too many examples like that, and certainly not in the context of apparel, where teams clearly could compete and they once did compete. So not necessarily commercial decisions, but more, uh, well, as you say, league rules and and, uh, playing rules and those kinds of things. That's what I suspect. Things that would not likely trigger litigation, or if litigation came up, it wouldn't be significant litigation. Mark, do you see anything in that uh, other than that? Do you agree with that assessment? I think Michael's completely right. Um, The NFL certainly will try to push further areas. And I think the vagueness of the opinion, given that it's coming from the Supreme Court, is meant to keep it somewhat vague and leaving open the possibility that maybe somewhere in certain ways the game rules cannot be challenged. Uh, It's also possible that Stevens is saying something a tad bit different, which is, yes, they can be challenged, but they're obviously reasonable under the rule of reason. Nothing is really going to change in the great structure of sports as a result of it. Well, Mark and Michael, stay with us. We're going to take a short break at this point, and we'll be back uh, in just a few moments to talk more about this Supreme Court ruling. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. 
Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all the great legal podcasts. Interested in having a show on Legal Talk Network? We'd like to talk to you about building your firm's marketing strategy with legal podcasts. Give us a call at 781-551-9960. That's LegalTalkNetwork.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are joined by Mark Edelman from Barry University's Duane O. Andreas School of Law and Michael McCann, who is a nationally recognized expert in the fields of sports law, antitrust, and behavioral law and economics. So how does this translate into, um, into applying this across, across um business fronts. Oh, I think we kind of visited that before, but it, it, I don't think we, we fully explored it. Do, do businesses expect to have this? Um, I mean, Michael, I think you talked about whether or not this even applies to licensing that other licensing that N- the NFL does in other areas. It's not just apparel that they license, but they license a lot of other things. So I'm sure other industries would have liked to have seen the NFL prevail. Uh, although, you know, I, I think with sports leagues, we're always dealing with a unique creature. There isn't a great analog in other industries that matches up with a league that has a centralized office but also has independent ownership but also plays in games. It's it's sort of a you know, it's sort of what makes sports great in a way is that we have this peculiar animal called a professional sports league that we like to watch. But I'm not sure other industries would have necessarily benefited from the NFL winning, although they would have argued that they could have, for instance, a fast food company and its individual restaurants that could be independently owned or partially owned might have tried to argue that single entity recognition would benefit them as well. Banks and credit card companies could have argued similarly. But I do think ultimately that a professional sports league is a unique creature. And however way the court decided in the context of professional sports, I'm not sure it would have been generally applicable, although certainly others would have tried to argue that point. Well, perhaps I mean another a variation on that question, I guess, is whether is whether there's a a sort of a floodgate aspect to this decision in terms of other pro sports leagues. Uh, is this likely to lead to litigation uh, against other leagues uh, over similar issues? Well, I don't think so because I, my sense is the the Supreme Court has essentially brought the law back to the way it was for decades. And we didn't see a floodgate of litigation then. The NFL has argued, well, you know, now, or, or others on behalf of the NFL have argued, well, now there's going to be a floodgate of litigation because Section 1 claims can occur. Well, where was the flood all those years before? You know, why would we suddenly see one now? That's why I don't, I don't think there's going to be a floodgate of litigation. I, I think that concern is overplayed. And I would just point to the, the decades of existence of Section 1 of the Sherman Act applying to league decisions where there wasn't a flood. Why wouldn't we see a flood before, and now we're suddenly going to see one now? I, I just don't see that happening. 
Well, well, one reason might be just that that, that the business has grown so much. I mean, this branded uh, league, branded merchandise, uh, I imagine, is is huge stuff. It's huge business. It is, but I think it was huge in the '80s and '90s as well. Yeah. And sure, there could be more litigation, but I I, I just don't see this decision triggering any significant change in the behavior of litigants and their relationship with professional sports leagues. Uh, I was just going to piggyback on what Mike was saying here, just to make the point hit home a little bit further, that the iconoclast, the outside, the unusual decision, was the Seventh Circuit, the District Court and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals opinion, that said sports leagues could be looked at one league at a time, one facet of a time. That that was a really unusual decision. Now, all we really had happen last Tuesday is we are now taking, the Supreme Court has taken the view, which has long been in place in the Second Circuit, the Third Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and put it in line with the Seventh Circuit. Now, if you look at the circuits in which sports cases have been challenged, a lot of them have been in the Second Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, the circuits that already had fully rejected the single entity thing. Now, this whole matter even came into the Seventh Circuit as a matter of legal accident. Uh, American Needle is located in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. So the closest court in which they'd be able to bring suit was the Northern District of Illinois. Presumably, they did not recognize that that was the one place where there was potential law in the other direction in the books. And that was law that really got pushed in by a single judge Frank Easterbrook, who historically has been very adverse to antitrust. He was on the losing side of a Supreme Court case in 1984, um, the Board of Regents versus the NCAA. Frank Easterbrook was the litigator on behalf of the NCAA. In that case, he tried to go to the Supreme Court and argue that the NCAA was a single entity, and he lost. And then 10 years later, when he was a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, In another case involving the Chicago Bulls and the NBA, he tried to revive the single-entity defense as a judge and dicta by saying, well, maybe there's a possibility that a sports league is a single-entity. And then much more recently, Judge Moran from the district court and the Court of Appeals just ran with it. But really what happened on Tuesday was the Supreme Court just put the district court and the Court of Appeals of the Seventh Circuit back in line with what's been the prevailing view elsewhere for a very long period of time. Is this a right decision in terms of the, the, the commercial uh, realities here? I mean, is it is it really fair to say that the NFL is anything but a single entity, uh, you know, in the way it, it functions? Uh, is it, is it uh, in other words, uh, did the Supreme Court, I guess, get it right from a functional point of view here? Uh, Mike, I'll ask you that question. Yeah, yeah, I think it did. I think the Supreme Court got this case correct. I think the NFL is a group of competing teams that clearly could compete in the context of apparel sales. In fact, they previously competed. In fact, Jerry Jones, when he owned the Dallas, he still owns the Dallas Cowboys, back in the mid-1990s, he sued other owners to get independence in licensing deals. So the notion that they necessarily collaborate for purposes of apparel sales, which is the traditional definition of single-entity recognition, it just isn't true in this context. So to the extent precedent matters, I think the Supreme Court Supreme Court got it correct. And I also think you could argue, and Mark has noted this earlier in our conversation, 
that there's a benefit to having Section 1 review of business deals that impact prices. That it, You know, the NFL could still win this case. Their contract with Reebok could be okay, but at least review it. At least see its effect on consumers and prices. It, there's very little harm, and I think a great benefit to consumers by reviewing contracts. The notion that those contracts should be precluded because the NFL is a single entity in the NFL's view, uh, I don't think is a very compelling reason. That's my view. What's Michael, what's the corporate structure of the NFL? As I understand it, the, the National Football League itself is a separate corporation, and each one of its 32 teams likewise have separate corporations of which they are in, in separate states and and license, and they are simply um, like members, as, as I understand it, of the NFL. How does that structure really work? I would view them as an association of individual entities that are that collectively agree on some basic rules of play, and they also agree on a whole bunch of other rules in terms of salary caps and and uh, free agency rights that have to be negotiated with the players' association. That they are a group of individual units, entities that are centralized in one office that ensures that the league is managed well, but they could also clearly compete in, in the context of a number of business ventures. Now, they, you know, they, like we said earlier, they have to collaborate in terms of something like a game rule. You have to agree on what the rules of play are. But in so many other contexts, they don't necessarily collaborate. And I think what the Supreme Court is saying is, you know, let's review these other decisions, or let's let's let a lower court have the potential of reviewing it without foreclosing that possibility. Mark, do you have do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I, I totally agree with what Mike is saying here. This court definitely came down the right way on the matter. Uh, the NFL is a very powerful business with a very strong marketing arm, and they've been able to convince us that they're just one thing. And maybe when we watch programming, that's the case. Uh, we have to recognize, though, if you really go all the way back to the early stages of the NFL and their predecessor leagues, that they began as a collection of clubs. They didn't begin as a league. In fact, if you turn to 1925, when Red Grange first came into the NFL, the Chicago Bears scheduled a whole series of additional games outside of the league schedule because they operated separately. Now, the efforts to consolidate and handle more issues at the league level rather than the club level have taken place over time. But the mere fact these changes have taken place over time doesn't mean that we should not review these changes to make sure they're right. Now, the closest parallel that I could come up with for the NFL would be something like the National Association of Real Estate Owners where they all work together on looking at certain multi-listings, but they're competitive companies. And the clubs do compete. They compete in many areas. They compete for selling tickets. They compete for players. And this is just one area where they could, and as Mike said, sometimes do compete. Well, gentlemen, it's, we've reached the, the point in our program where we need to uh, get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So, Michael, I know you were ready to kind of jump in there. So, let's start with you and get your final thoughts and contact information, please. Well, my final thought, just to continue Mark's point, is that the, the idea that competitors choosing to collaborate for a long period of time, perhaps decades, means that there should be an antitrust exemption 
I think sets a bad precedent. And I think the Supreme Court was worried by that. You know, yes, the NFL and its teams choose to collaborate and have done so since 1963 for purposes of apparel sales. Well, that doesn't mean it's correct. That doesn't mean that antitrust law shouldn't apply. So that's my final thought was just sort of a continuation of Mark's point. My contact info is uh, I'm a law professor at Vermont Law School, and I also have a column on SI.com, sports law. You can uh, Google it, and uh, I'd be happy to stay in touch with you. Great. And Mark? Back in 2008, when this case was on the district court level, I wrote a law review article why the single-entity defense can never apply to NFL clubs. Uh, I spent 70 pages or so going through the entire history of the NFL, and I never thought that we'd be able to get nine justices to agree to that or anything else. The fact this opinion was 9-0 makes it pretty clear. The NFL is not a single entity. What happened here might be pro-competitive, but we have to look at the rules. Now, for those that wish to contact me, the best way is at mark at markedelman.com. That's M-A-R-C at M-A-R-C-E-D-E-L-M-A-N.com. And I'd be delighted to discuss this decision with sports law with anybody further. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. We appreciate you being on the show today. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Let me add my thanks to uh, Mark and to Michael for taking the time to be with us and share their thoughts on this issue. And uh, add a reminder to our listeners that they can now get CLE credit for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer by going to the Legal Talk Network website and clicking on West Legal Ed Center there and finding our program. And uh, Craig, uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll talk to you then again, Bob. And for our listeners, remember, you can find all of the Legal Talk Network shows as well as Lawyer to Lawyer on iTunes. And we'll get another great legal topic to discuss next week. We'll see you then. See you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.